Welcome to the Data Strategy Show. My name's Samir Sharma, and I'll be your host for the next 60 minutes. My guest today is the brilliant Bill Schmarter. He's a pragmatic hands-on leader, experienced in establishing, nurturing, and empowering data science and value engineering teams to uncover and monetize the value buried in an organization's data. He's often called the, called the Dean of Big Data, and he helps drive data monetization by integrating design thinking with data science, employing what he calls a rapid exploration, rapid testing, failure empowering, continuously learning methodology. Gosh, that's a mouthful. He's also an influencer and an innovator, a professor and an educator, teaching the Big Data MBA at the University of San Francisco School of Management and National University of Ireland, Galway, School of Business and Economics. And he also lectures to numerous universities and organizations worldwide. Guess what? He's also the author of four books. Big Data, Understanding How Data Powers Big Business, The Big Data MBA, Driving Business Strategies with Data Science, and the forthcoming Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation. And he's published over 350 industry-leading articles and educational videos on the application of big data, data science, AI, ML, and IoT to drive data monetization and digital transformation. I hope you enjoy this episode and please do like, share and leave your feedback. Thank you for listening. Bill Schmatzo, thank you for coming on to the Data Strategy Show. I tell you, this is, I've been waiting for this one. I really have been. This has been fantastic. And I have been researching everything that you have said. No, not really. Um, <laughs> listen, you know, I've got your, there's too much to say about you. You are a the chief data monetization officer, you're a recognized innovator, educational practitioner in data science, design thinking, creator of the Big Data MBO. Four books, including economics of data analytics and digital transformation. You're at the University of Iowa. You're at the Galway J.E. Kent School of Business. Dude, you're just like, you know, I want to be you. Isn't that a song <laughs> from the Jungle Book? <laughs> yeah. I want to be like you. Yeah, exactly. Da, 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 like you. I want to oh, walk man. like you, talk <laughs> like you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite Disney movies. Is it? Did you hit it? I didn't even yeah. know that, and I missed that in the research. Oh, hey, listen. Yeah. No, no. You know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to, to finally get you onto the show. And I, I want to ask you one question first, just, just right. a little bit of, I mean, we've already had fun, which is great. How the hell and where did you get this? Uh, title the big data dean oh the dean of big yeah, data the yeah. dean of big data you know i mean i there's, love there's that a, there's a there's a great story behind this so um the very first strata conference was held here in san jose god i don't remember how many years ago oh gosh strata okay yeah that yeah yeah and yeah. they were organizing this and they wanted a session that talked about the business impact of mm -hmm. of big data and such. Yep. And I don't know how they came across me, but um, the, the, the organizers of it said, hey, Schmars, do you mind coming in and doing a one hour session on, you know, what does data mean to the business? Why should yep. people care about this? So I said, okay, I'm going to do a session called the big data NBA. All right. And so I dived in, you know, Michael Porter, value chain analysis, the economics, I just gave him a I gave the audience sort of a broad overview of why data is important from a business perspective and how mm -hmm. it drives value. Yeah, it, it went off very well. Actually, it sort of was a launching point. One of those, you know, Forrest Gump moments, right place, right time. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. in life, yeah. you just get lucky. And that was one yeah. of those things that got lucky. So afterwards, oh. I, I presented this and, I'm, and I go and I'm speaking at, on the cube with um, Jeff Frick, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they, Devante, uh, um, I can't remember all the names, uh, John Furrier um, and such. And so I'm, I'm on there and they said, well, Schmarzo, what would you talk about? And, and John Furrier knows me from, from lives in a neighborhood. So he's like, Schmarzo, okay. what, are you, what are you doing here in Strata? And I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I said, I had a class called the Big Data NBA. And I kind of walked through the class and, and they both look at each other, Furrier and Frick. And they go, they go, wow, you're like the Dean of Big Data. Okay. Well, there it, it was. Stuck. There and that stuck. And that was, and that's it. You've, you, I mean, I know you are the Dean of Big Data anyway, because you are, you know, you do your MBA Big Data class. Um, so let me ask you, you've talked about an, a number of things there about value creation, the value chain analysis and so on. I, I'm going to get straight into it. One of the things that uh, is always a, a big question that 
sits on top of the mind of many CEOs or CIOs or those people who want to get something done but don't know how to do it is how do organizations identify sources of value creation in their data, right? This is a big question continuously that I get. I, know, I mean, I, I, I know how to do it, right? But there's a few people who know how to do it. And I think you're the one. And I think your, your book, The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation, drives those concepts. Yeah, which, you know, I've got. Um, and I'm getting through it and I'm reading it, but uh, it's, 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 not, it's not an easy read. It's, it's a very dense. <laughs> I, I, it is. I, I it's, it's a long read. But, you know, I, yeah. I like and, and we'll talk about some of the concepts and, and things that you've got in that book. But just tell me about that whole thing around value creation and data. Why is it so challenging for organizations? It, you know, days? Samir, it shouldn't be. Yeah, it shouldn't yeah. be. It should be the easiest thing in the world. And we we err on the the fascination with technology. Right. Think about all the great stuff we're doing with deep learning. I mean, holy yeah. cow, we, you know, deep learning can recognize cancer and offer of x-rays yep. more effectively than a doctor and it can do voice recognition. And you, you think about all these great things going on with technology and we tend to get so, you know, immersed in the technology that we miss the simple stuff, which is if you really want to drive value from this, the first step is you need to understand how does your organization derive value? Right? Yep. You sell products, yep. you serve customers, right? They, there, there are certain aspects of your business that are sources of value creation. And all we want to do is we want to link the outcomes mm -hmm. that drive that value mm -hmm. with the outputs that come from AI and analytics and data. The yeah. problem is that we, we, tend to, we tend to want to start with the outputs, the AI, you know, ML and all that yeah, great yeah. stuff, and yeah. figure out how to map it to... Yes outcomes yeah. and that's like driving you know stakes in the sand and hoping you hit oil it's, it's <laughs> yeah. such a hard thing to do right yeah. the yeah. easy thing the brain dead thing to do is well let's start with the outcomes we want customer retention reduce operational downtime whatever it might be every organization's got desired outcomes and then let's work backwards to figure out what analytics do we need what predictions do we need to make what Absolutely. recommendations it's really really simple if you start with the desired outcomes and the value of those outcomes instead of the other way around. So, so, so it's interesting. You just said the word brain dead. You know, I, I think it was in 2014 that I had a pretty much this epiphany, right? I was sitting there one day and I often talk to people about there is no such thing as um, there is no such conversation as, as, as a conversation of data. There is only a conversation of value. And I remember walking into a, um, in, into a meeting. One of my clients, I'm sitting there. Everybody's talking about data. And I just thought, what are we doing here? And I literally, I said, right, stop. We're going to abandon this meeting. They thought I was a nutcase. I walked away. And uh, I literally said, well, reconvene tomorrow. And we're going to sit here. And, and I'm going to take you through something I'm thinking about right now. And my mind started thinking about very specific things around we're not even starting with the why. We're not starting with the, the, the strategic, strategic objectives. All we're, all we're worried about is, you know, some bit of tech and some data and, you know, ho, you know hey, presto, we're going to make magic. And something's going to pop out of that tech and data and it's going to dazzle us. It doesn't work that way. So, you know, one of the things that you often talk about is pre-work. I talk about foundations. Why is that so important in the context of data, analytics, any of those things and what are the kind of things that you need to ensure that those that pre-work or foundations is done so Samir, you've probably been in many similar situations where somebody on the business side walks up to you and says i've got some data tell me what's valuable in it <laughs> now it's, you know, uh, we'd if, laugh. if i i if i had you know a, a dollar yeah. every time somebody said that to me i'd we be, would, uh, we'd be we'd be have like i'd have all kinds of fancy stuff. I'd have better lighting here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? They, here's the data. And the problem is, unless you know what problem you're trying to solve, yeah, can't distinguish what's, what is noise from signal in yeah. the data, yes. right? It's, yes. it's what else you're trying to prove. The same data set can be used to solve all kinds of different problems. Think about the value of a point of sale system. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, fraud detection, customer retention, and campaign effectiveness. I mean, the use cases go on and on and on. Which one? Which one's most important for you? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the key question. So, mm -hmm. so if if you if you don't do all that pre work of identifying 
what problem you're going to go after, what are the metrics or KPIs against what you're going to measure success and yep. progress, who are the kid business stakeholders, what are the assets around which you're going to build analytics, what are the decisions they're trying to make, the predictions, and you know, if you think about all this stuff that you have <sighs> to do before you ever yep. put science yep. to the data, yep, right? You can't. Yep. The data scientists can't really do anything effective unless they know with it with very well scoped what they're trying to solve. And by the way, a big part of that, we have a tool called the Hypothesis Development Canvas that we developed mm -hmm. that we fill out in collaboration with the business stakeholders before yep. we ever start the yep. data science work. Yep. And the single most important panel in that, I think it's panel thirteen, is understanding the costs of false positives and false negatives. Now think about it from a data science perspective. How do you know if a model is good enough? Mm -hmm. Well, you only know if you know the cost of the false positive and false negative. Yeah. Is 70% is accuracy good enough or, or I need 99, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, what's the cost of being wrong? So mm -hmm. there is mm -hmm. so much that has to happen first. But when you do that, there's, there's two benefits. When you do all that pre-work, first off, the data science team now knows crystal clear what they're trying to deliver. And all their creativity, innovation, and, and hyperparameter optimization, and data transformation, all that stuff, you know, all those great tricks come to bear. But the second benefit here is now the business already knows how they're going to use the outcomes, drive yes. outcomes. Yes. That's the key point. Yes, I agree. Do you know, I, 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 I would give you a hug right now if I could, Bill. <laughs> Virtual one. i tell you why, because I, you know, you, 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 You've hit on one of my my biggest um, uh, the, the things that I continuously talk about when I'm talking to my clients. It has got nothing to do with the tech or the data. It's got everything to do with the outputs. And even before you decide what algorithm you're going to use, what you know, is it going to be a I don't know classification or a regression or whatever it might be. Listen, there's this ton of work that we need to do before we get there, right? And, and that, that is, it, sorry, go on. So, and if you don't do that ton, ton of yeah. work, if you don't build that sort of bridge with the business stakeholders, yeah. you're gonna come up with all kinds of great outputs that never yes. get turned into outcomes. Yeah, and and here's the thing, you you know, in, in that statement that you've just said there, you've you've said that it's, it's a stakeholder influence process, right? This is no namby-pamby stuff around culture or anything like that. However, it's, it's not guff, but it is true cultural transformation. And from my point of view, I think you hit on something which in the book reminds me. And I always, I, you know, you talked about a canvas, right? I have this, this you know, diagram from, I, when I think about data strategy, it's, it's, it's a number of components all stuck together. But I, I've devised um, what I call a decision map uh, canvas. I've got a data accelerator canvas. And they kind of work, but they can only work if I'm working off the business objectives, if I know right. where it's being driven. But interestingly, in your book, which I really love, which not a, not a lot of people apply it to the process of, of decision science or to um, any kind of analytical thinking or even just trying to think of what the use cases are. You talk ab about, uh, you know, a, a, a big uh, portion of what you do is design thinking. Why hasn't that kind of, you know, hit into the way of analytics? I certainly use it in a, in a huge way because I see it completely valuable in what people do. But why is it not seen as the things that every company should be doing, especially when they talk about we want to be customer centric? You know, we're a product company and now we want to be customer centric. Well, you've got to do this stuff before you actually get to customer centric values. So why is design thinking so important? I, I think part of it is it's, it is very, still very new that there in the last, I mean, to be honest with you, probably four or five years ago, I had no idea what it was. Yeah. I mean, how I, did you get a, onto it then? Uh, a friend of mine um, who has a, who was very good friends with a senior consult, a senior data scientist at Google. Okay. I, so I was, I was very curious as far as, you know, why is Google so damn effective with their data science i mean yeah you get the you get a lot of the best people yeah but i've run into a lot of really smart data scientists who couldn't deliver crap mm -hmm. and and, and mm -hmm. these folks deliver really valuable stuff and yeah and so I, I i bought him a coffee and we here in palo alto and we're uh, we're talking i said okay you need to understand why are your data scientists so much more effective than the average one 
and he smiles and he goes design thinking i was like and you what, the what? Hell? <laughs> what design thinking what is that he goes you never heard of design thinking i said i have no idea what design thinking is he goes yeah Come with me on Friday. I'll take you over to Stanford to the D school, their design school. Okay. Let's spend a, let's spend a day there working through some of their exercises and just kind mm-hmm. of mapping mm-hmm. and following, shadowing them. Mm-hmm. I said, sure. I mean, cup of coffee. It's a cheap thing, cheap date, right? Absolutely. So I go there and and I I realized that a lot of many things that I did have very much design thinking constructs to it. Mm-hmm. around the area of ideation, right? Um, how to run a facilitated workshop, how, how all ideas are worthy of consideration, yep. the concepts around, you know, first you diverge with ideation, then you converge and prioritize you. My whole vision workshop process leveraged unknowingly lots of design thinking techniques. Sure. But then I learned a ton more, mm-hmm. customer journey maps and service designs and personas. Yep. It's like, oh my yep. gosh, I'm just drooling because these design thinking we talked about doing all that homework before we ever start putting science mm-hmm. to the data. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's design thinking. Like, yeah. I love I love a customer journey map. I mm-hmm. want to know not just what a customer is doing with my products. I want to know what happens that has that customer start start even thinking about using my product. And then I want to know Agreed. what happens after they use my product. I yeah. want to understand yeah. everything because, because you know why? There's value being created all through that process. And I want to be able to tap into that value. So the... Design thinking was a very natural addition. So what did I do? And I got a patent around this, right? How did I integrate design thinking and wow. data science together in a methodology, right? And yeah. Because they, they're they both very, think about what data science does. It's very trial and error centric. You try lots of things. Mm-hmm. You're, you're mm-hmm. exploring different things. You, you learn through failure. It's like, holy cow, data science and design thinking are like different sides of the same coin. But, but actually, they, all... they kind of merge, don't they? They, they sort oh, of, yeah, you I've, know. I've got a great yeah. graphic that shows how yeah. the five stages of design thinking and the five stages of data science, they're like this. Yeah. They're yeah. very, very similar. Mm. But mm. here's the thing that I've learned in the last couple of years, Samir, is that design thinking is great at ideating. Right. Bringing people together. Yeah. But I've also started to see design thinking being used. Um, I have a friend, John Morley, who is the master of doing this. Um, he worked to me at Hitachi. And if God, hopefully he'll work with me wherever I go next, <laughs> but he's, he's masterful at how he uses design techniques to drive organizational alignment. And I, I can't go into details on what we've done from uh, execution perspective, but we had an exercise where I was previously, where we had very divergent views between product management, engineering, yep. the data science team and marketing and so we ran a process, something we called innovative doing, which is a, was a long process where we really worked with the different groups, understood the assets that they brought, understood mm-hmm. the overarching intent, aspiration of where we were going, and came up with a solution. Instead of settling on the least worst option, we were able to synergize across all the assets people brought together to come up with the best, best option. And so wow. now I am totally sold. That if I believe that what's the biggest challenge organizations have is how do you go from outputs to outcomes? Yeah. That the challenge here, while there's an AI ML technology challenge, a data challenge, there is a cultural challenge that using these canvases like the ones you have can help us start to address how do we change the organization to start exploiting the unique economic characteristics of data and analytics? I, I, I find that fascinating. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, and I think that's a, that's a great way to, to um, classify that kind of work. Because a lot of the time, you will get into a workshop and you'll start to facilitate the, you know, the vision and so on and start to bring it down into you know, maybe use case sort of views and what we're going to do. Not everyone is always in that room, right? And the disruptors are outside of that room. And I think when you, when you bring a canvas into a room, when you start to, 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 to strip everything back and start to map out what the conditions are, you start to see the gaps. And you say, no, we've got to get Mary from so-and-so because she's not here. If she's a product design, designer or product engineer, Hell, you know, we've got to have that person in the room and that's the person who's going to, you know, essentially torpedo what we're doing. So I think the cultural aspect is huge, huge in this area. And you, you, and you couldn't have said it better. Yeah. You, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but you, you've nailed it. Yeah. 
if you don't take the time upfront to identify all the different stakeholders, those people who either impact or are impacted by that initiative mm -hmm. and give them a chance for their voice to be heard, to yeah. understand their, their assets they bring to the, to the problem, to embrace the diverse perspective they have. If you don't bring them into the process, more projects die mm. due to mm. passive aggressive behaviors than they do to technology. Right? Absolutely. If you haven't brought Absolutely. that person in, they will not support you. Yeah. They, in fact, they may even work to undermine you. And, so, and it's interesting because Peter Aiken, who's on the show, show last week, actually said to me, 5% is the technology bit. It's 95%, which is the people and process, which kills it all. Yep. So why is, there such, why, why is there such a small amount of attention paid on culture? It's increasingly the thing that will, you know, break or make uh, a program or uh, an initiative. Here's, here's what I think the, the yeah. challenge is mm -hmm. um, and why culture is so hard because it means that executive management needs to let go. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, and, and, absolutely. And it means that executive management needs to understand that they're maybe not the most knowledgeable person in the room, mm -hmm. that, um, that there are probably people at the front lines of either in customer engagement or operational yep. management of the organization who know more. If you're trying to improve the operational uptime of a theme park, do you want to talk to the general manager of the theme park or the technicians who day-to-day -day are wrestling with that problem? Absolutely. Who's we know. Who, yeah, yeah. We know who knows the yeah, problem. We know who yeah. has ideas what they do, right? And so I think what we're seeing generally speaking is, is a, it's, a, it's a holdover from maybe from my generation, where the, the command line structure, command and control, organizational box, you fit into a box and yeah. by golly, don't you ever leave that box. You, you box people in, but we, and that is a ramification here. So that the, if you can't get the frontline people, if you can't empower them, mm -hmm. then you're never going to have the cultural change, no matter yeah. how many times the CEO says, you know, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Well, trust me, I've not seen it yet. So, um, <laughs> so I, I think that's the problem. It's, it's an executive management yeah. challenge. And you'll find a few, but not many senior executives who are willing to give up control to the people on the front lines. But when you do that, that's when you really change the game. The technology mm -hmm. can support that, obviously, sure, sure. But the technology can't replace that. No, and I think you know. I think you you've got a, a, a label for this in your book, which is called value engineering. Yes. Um, which is, you know, I like the term because it. I mean, I know you know you and I dislike. Shall I use the word dislike because it's less than what I would have said? But dislike the the term data-driven. And I've right. always loved the term value-driven. So for me, value engineering is, you know, someone might look at it and say, oh, value engineering. Well, I'm not going to do some feature engineering on, a, on my algorithm. No, 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 no. So take us through your view of what value engineering is and how that helps us do this pre-work and, and cajole the, the, the impetus. Um, because I will come to the other term that you use, which it, on the cover of your book, which is, you know, a term that has become so synonymous with not achieving digital transformation. Oh, you know. <laughs> is there a more meaningless word in the world? Can we, can we, can we group that in with jumble shrimp? <laughs> jumble shrimp and digital transformation. Yeah, yeah, that, that, <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about value engineering. Yeah, let's do Value that. engineering, I think, is, um, is a true discipline. Mm. And the, I've, I've known a few people who have done it who are really good at it. Yeah. And that is, in order to have the value engineering process must start with what's important to the organization. What are they trying to achieve? Yeah. Are they trying to increase same store sales, reduce attrition? Or, um, you know, if you're a hospital, maybe trying to reduce, you know, um, um, unplanned readmissions and uh, uh, hospital acquired infections, right? So every organization has uh, a business initiative that has some value attached to it, right? If I can yep. reduce hospital acquired infections by 10%, it's worth $35 million a year for me. Okay, I like problems. Okay, I, yeah, okay, go ahead. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. wanna find something that has demonstrable, quantifiable value. So 
That's step one is you need to understand what's the thing of value. And in mm -hmm. particular, mm -hmm. try to pick things that are a focus over the next 12 to 18 months. Okay. I don't like things that are five years out because no. management, team, yeah, no. you know, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. I ain't got no time for green bananas, folks. <laughs> so I want things that are going to be hit right now. Right. So once you've done that, then what's really key, and we've talked about this, is step mm -hmm. two is to identify the stakeholders. Yep. Those people who either impact or are impacted by that business initiative. Right. And you, you need to be able to identify those people because you're going to want to bring them into a process. You're going to interview them. You're going to run workshops. Well, what you want to find out from each of those different stakeholders are what are the decisions yeah. they're trying to make in support yep. of that business initiative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the beauty, the thing I found about decisions is that every business stakeholder I have talked to in my 40 years in this industry can tell you like, this yep what's the most important no to decisions decisions yeah. haven't changed in in generations right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's changed by virtue of the data and analytics are the answers yeah yeah so if we understand the decisions we go through a process to identify validate value and prioritize the decisions which end up clustering by the way in a term to use earlier use cases mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. There's a number, each one of these business initiatives probably breaks down into 10, 12, 14 different use cases. And now you need to prior to those use cases, which one are we going to do first? Which one yeah. has the, both the high, yeah. uh, a good balance between high value and high feasibility? Mm -hmm. What is the, mm -hmm. what are the dependencies on use cases? Maybe this one, maybe use case A is the most valuable one, but I got to do B and C first. Before I can, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you got to yeah. have that and you need to come up with a roadmap that shows the use cases, but also clearly articulates back to all the stakeholders this is how this roadmap is going to value, going to mm -hmm. drive value to you, mm -hmm. right? The first mm -hmm. use case, and by what we find is you go on a use case by use case basis, it changes everything. First off, each use case has an incredible ROI. It isn't unusual. Our first use, I just did a project where our first use case, I think of the project going to cost them $800,000. The use case was valued at $28 million. Eight hundred thousand. I mean, <laughs> hmm. well, it's a hard decision. I don't and, know, and, right? And and it's interesting you say that because a lot of the time you see organizations not doing it because they don't believe that the outcome is going to be there. Right. You know. So, so you do proof, oh, So you you do a proof of value. Yeah. So you say, okay, I'm going to prove. Now it's going to cost you some money. We're going to. It's going to cost you. You know maybe thirty three hundred thousand dollars to prove yeah. it or two hundred thousand dollars. But by the way, everything we build in a proof of value is going to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So you do agreed. have to have a process. And what I, what I like about the use case by use case approach, number one, death of big bang. Yeah. You don't need to go out and spend Absolutely. 20 or $30 million for a big data analytics system and wait five years for something to happen and hope at the end, something of value squirts out. Right. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. you can do these projects, six, nine, 12 months, six or nine yeah. month projects, bang, bang, bang. And and if you do this use case by use case process and the Schmarzo digital economic value theorem kicks in, right? Where I can build out my data lake use case by use case. I don't need to put 24 data sets so, in my data lake. Exactly, exactly. So you're doing data by data, you're doing your discovery, you're bringing what you need, and then you're kind of saying, okay, so, you know, this is good. We've, we've, we, we've done what we set out to do. We've got the 28, whatever it is, million. Um, or it could be a portion of that because we know we're getting over time. So, you know, and, and I think that's, that's the interesting thing because you talk about, and I wrote it down earlier on, and I think this is what you're talking about, Schmarzo's, I don't know what the, the expression the was. Economic was. digital value, was, uh, yes, asset valuation <laughs> yeah. theorem, yes. So, that's a mouthful. Nobel Prize around my deck for every podcast. <laughs> but what I did like was, you know, that you, you, you mention it in the book, the economics of learning are, far more important, powerful than the economies of scale. And that's what you're talking about there, right? Yes. Yes. The fact, the fact that I can use case by use case, build out my data and analytics. So my first use case, you know, maybe you need three or four data sets. Mm -hmm. So I put them in there, I curate them, I enhance them, I enrich them. And now those data sets are available to use across an unlimited number of use sure. cases sure. at a marginal cost equal to zero, zero. right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. I, I, so I pay the price for that first use case. I pay the mm -hmm. price for those first three data sets. Oh, by the way, three data sets generate $28 million. That's great. I go to my second use case. The second use case says, well, I need to have, I can reuse two of those data sets in there. I yep. need to add a third one, right? I'm only have to pay the marginal cost of that third one. Mm -hmm. And you can start seeing now use case by use case. I'm building on my data lake. 
and I'm driving the reuse. And again, what, what kills the economic value of data are data silos where I can't reuse it. I can't apply this economic multiplier effect, which is really yeah. critical. Yeah. So, yeah. That, so yeah. this use case by use case approach also means that companies literally are printing money. This is the thing that's so insane about it. Use case by use case. First one has 28 million. This one has maybe 14 million in value. This one only got nine. But by the way, the marginal cost for adding another data source was you know, 500,000. So I spend 500,000, I get 9 million. Geez, like every day of the week, right? You're just printing money. But the same thing also holds true for the analytics. If you engineer your analytics, if you avoid orphaned analytics, right? Which by the way, is a huge I, I, it's, a, it's an expression that I'd written down after reading the book, so we we're going to get onto it. But now you've got onto it, go for it. Yeah, so the problem with orphaned analytics is that, is that, especially in very mature analytic organizations, is the ability to build one-off analytic models to solve a problem. It's easier to build one from scratch than to find one that somebody else already rebuilt and used that, right? Because when Bob built the first one, he didn't document it. He didn't yeah. pull the test data. He didn't yeah. have all the data pipelining. There's no, that hyperparameter optimization isn't tuned right. It's, it's, it's never been engineered as a product. And so mm -hmm. you have this proliferation mm -hmm. of ML models, these orphan analytics across the organization. What happens if you take a use case by use case approach, you build the analytics for that first use case, but you engineer them like a product. So it has all the pipeline and hyperparameter right. optimization. Okay. And, enrichment and that's the foundational elements, right? The pre-work. That's the yeah. foundation. Yeah, right? yeah. And then yeah. once you've done that, I can now use that, re not only can I reuse that, that analytic module over and over and over again, but let's say on my fourth or fifth use case, one of my big giant brain data scientists figures out how to, you know, how to use a different technique or a different enrichment process or algorithm, right? And makes that algorithm 1% more effective. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Every other use case yes. that used that yeah. just got 1% more effective yeah. for free. Yeah. yeah. And this, this, this is the, the, the model I hold out here is the Tesla model mm -hmm. and their FSD analytic module. So they have a fully self-driving analytic module. Sure. Right. Right. They full, it's, it's the heart of their autonomous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how they're learning. Right. That's, that's it's, yeah. So you got a million of these Teslas roaming around the streets of the world, learning as it goes along, has mm -hmm. AI and ML built into it. Every, it's, it's continuously learning every corner it takes, every mud puddle it drives through, every, every, every bike it, it navigates around safely. Anything it learns, it gets propagated back up to the Tesla cloud, mm -hmm. integrated and then back and propagated. Back so, that down, any, yeah. so anything that one car has learned, yeah. all million right. cars have learned. Yeah. Which is and the beauty of this, yeah. And this fully self-driving FSD yeah. module is just yeah. getting smarter and smarter. It's it's a brilliant business model. 99.999% of the companies out there don't get it. And it's right in front of us. He's like, he's like taunting us with this. Yeah. And 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 I think you in the book, you talk about uh, the, the curve from going from, you know, reactive to proactive to prescriptive to you know, all of the predictive, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But then you say, look, there's one more beyond that. And, I've, and now I understand where you've got it from. You've looked at, at Elon Musk, you've looked at Tesla and said, they know exactly what they're doing. So this whole idea of autom automotive analytics um, is probably still way out there, right? Yeah. But the idea is building to get to that point because we will get there. Absolutely. We will have self-learning, you know, the, the, those, the, those, uh, the, the algorithms that will do that um, and we'll get there. How do you get organizations to think in that way, to really kind of break through and, and have a mindset change to get so, so there? There's, there's two things. So one is, I think you need to have this aspirational view that leveraging AI and ML I can create assets that continuously learn and adapt. Yep. So you, you need to, it's gotta be at an executive level that we're gonna do this. <clears throat> Number two, you need to have somebody in the organization who owns that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who is not buried under the CIO, right? So we're gonna talk about Somebody that in the organization who yeah. really owns Okay, right. So I, I, I won't go there any further. I'll let you get there. But, but, there, but there, you need to have that person who owns this thing, right? Yes. And let me, and to make sure, well, let's go ahead and go. No, no, there. no, carry on, carry on. Because I, I, I think where you're going is probably where I'll, I'll, you know, the segue into it. But 
So you need to have this person who really, I'm going to call them a chief data monetization officer. Okay. Right. I like that term, right? Not a chief data officer, a chief data monetization officer whose job is to monetize this valuable asset. Mm -hmm. And they can't mm -hmm. sit underneath the CIO. Yeah. They got to be able to straddle across all the different product groups, all the different engineering groups, all the different parts of the organization mm -hmm. in order to drive this sort of thing. So to me, that's critical. Let me throw one other wrinkle in here. If we don't, if we don't address the human aspect of it, it will not be successful. And here's the beauty. In the same way that AI and ML can build assets and continuously learn and adapt, well, humans can continuously learn and adapt as well. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. We just need to empower them. Right? And we do, we, we do a crappy job of empowering the people in our organization. Right. So, so, so the, the, that's interesting for me because I see it time and time again. So let me ask you a question then. When you're running, you know, you, in your jobs, in, in everything that you do, you've led big teams. How do you just give them that carte blanche to say, look, you work for me. Yeah, sure. In this hierarchy of an organization, fine. But actually, you probably know more than me anyway. Yeah. How do you give them that space and time to think differently and to be able to make that decision, you know, without a constant feedback mechanism in there? What's the thing that you do? So I, I believe in organizational improvisation. This okay. idea that you can create a team that can morph and move and change dependent on the, lead, on, on the job in front of you. That you need to empower every team to be prepared to lead. Mm -hmm. They're going to have a chance to lead mm -hmm. that you need to empower them to make decisions. Yeah. Not punishing them when they're wrong. Right. But do hold them accountable to learn from their wrong. And maybe it's because, you know, I played college basketball. I also played in a jazz band in college as well. And what you learn from those kind of endeavors is, you know, I was a great lead trumpet player. I was really very, very I good. I cannot believe you played the trumpet. So did I. Yeah. Oh, there we go. That's yeah. Amazing. So I was, <laughs> I was I was very very good lead trumpet player. I was yeah. a big tall yeah. guy, and, and yep. I could really you could belt them knew, out. But I knew, and I actually had my own jazz band for two summers. Uh, I also knew awesome. that the guy who played lead sax, uh, tenor sax, was a hell of a lot better than me. Yeah, and, the, and everybody everybody had contributed in their own way, and you empowered everybody to do what they wanted to do. Sure. So I had some people sure. who never wanted to play solos. And I had some who were damn good at playing solos. And so you, you, this organizational improv is really critical. So I think part of the job is this cultural challenge. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. seems weird that you would have the chief data monetization officer own that, but maybe that's because that's the wrong title. Maybe it needs to be a chief innovation officer yeah. who not only owns the innovation around data and analytics, but also owns the innovation around empowering teams. So it, it, what we talked about before we got into this was exactly that. You know, we have got so many. Um, let, let's see. We've got and, and here's some titles that I've seen recently. Chief AI officer, chief data officer, chief analytics officer, chief data and information officer. Where does it end? And, you know, you and I were saying that why didn't we just have uh, a chief data and analytics officer, because to be honest, the two need to be together and they need to be uh, in sync with each other. Right. But we've got these pools of, of talent everywhere or, you know, uh, obvious titles. But now to embed the chief data monetization officer, what does that do? Because now we're, we're talking about making money out of our data, which, you know, it was a question I had here about why is it so difficult for organizations to think about monetizing data, but it's, it's, you know, there are only a few people in the whole, sorry, organizations, in the whole world who do this. You and I know who they are, right? right? We don't need to espouse their names because God, they do it so well. Why is it that we continuously see organizations not being able to break that ceiling? It's not about selling a bit of data, but what's the, what is the challenge for these organizations? And we'll get back to, I remember I'm writing, going to write it down. We'll get back to titles in a minute, but you just, yeah. something else fired off in my brain. So, well, I think they're related in the sense that um, we, we create these boxes. Chief yeah. Data officer, you sit here. Yeah. Chief analytics officer, you sit here. Um, you know, 
chief data governance officer, you, you sit here, right? We organizations are so fixated on creating boxes. And by the way, every, every high-end management consulting firm that comes in to try to unleash the value in organization, the first thing they do is they put more boxes out there. Mm-hmm. Boxes, mm-hmm. friggin' boxes, right? <laughs> right? No, boxes contain, yes. they don't empower. You yeah. don't want boxes, you want swirls. You want yeah. you want to have a single organization where somebody who is a you know, chief analytics officer and a chief data officer, maybe collaborating with a chief innovation officer, they're working in a swirl about how do we monetize not only our data, but our people? How do we get more value out of our data and analytic assets, but how do we empower our people to get more yeah. value? Right? It, yeah. it needs to be swirls and putting people into boxes is a guaranteed way for failure mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people become so entrenched in boxes. I, I friggin' hate boxes. I think boxes is, is the great killer of innovation, right? And so I think you, you have this proliferation of titles because organizations haven't changed the frame of how they think about business. Mm. We still have organizations mm. that were designed in the 1950s and 60s, right after World War II. You know, the World War II was fought with a very, you know, command and control structure. The yeah. general made this, yeah, right? Exactly. Everybody, everybody yeah. followed the orders. Yeah. World's changed. Yeah. World's changed, yeah. right? You yeah. can't, the person at the top can't possibly know as much about what's happening as no, the people on the, the front lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what you talk about uh, as well. You talk about organizations um, that still have this legacy thinking that is killing innovation. Um, and, and for me, that's really interesting because the way that you set that framework is to suggest that many titles are happy with doing these um, five to seven year legacy projects, which will put in this big behemoth of an application. And that's what they want on their CV. So from that, how do we bash that all up? And how do we then start to, 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 to mod, I mean, I, you know, the, the swirls that you talk about and then bring these types of roles and titles together that actually get the value out of data that we need so that, you know, one, we can make money because essentially that's what right. we're supposed to be there doing. But right. We can create this innovation that is deep innovation ingrained in this, you know, organization, because the Googles and the Amazons and all of that, they are doing that day in, day out. Right? Yes. The, the, uh, I'm probably more familiar with, with Google than the others, right? Yeah. You're exactly right. That's how they think. They, they execute this organizational improv. It's, you know, the way that they attack a project, it's like watching a good jazz quartet, right? They, different people take the lead in different mm-hmm. things. And they're riffing off each other. And it's like, it's, it's marvelous. And they don't even have a friggin' piece of music in front of them. Right. Yeah. There's no, there's no, right. They're just, they're <laughs> just working with each other. And you see this with great sports team. I like to talk about uh, the U S women's Olympic soccer team. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah they yeah, were, amazing. they were amazing. And yeah. you watch them play and there wasn't a coach above them saying, you know, Sally, you move here and Joni, you move there and you kick over, you know, they've been empowered to mm-hmm. do their own thing. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. by the way, you know, the 1805, I think it was a battle of Trafilliger, you know, Admiral Nelson taught us the power of empowering, of empowering teams. And so it isn't like it's anything new. Yeah. Yet organizations have this, this, this desire to put people in boxes. And until they figure out that boxes aren't how you win, it's with these swirls, these organizational improv, that I believe more than AI and ML adoption, the ability to get rid of the boxes and create swirls will differentiate the winners from the losers in this world of transformation. Because getting back to a point earlier, when you put swirls in place, you learn more quickly. You sure. try sure. test, right? Yeah. And you also, the whole organization is learning. It's not a box learns here and tries to figure out how to get that knowledge no. over to something else. So it's, again, the destruction of the, of the boxes has got to be imperative. And- and it's interesting you say that because I think now what we're seeing more and more, um, you know, we used to talk about organizational silos, right? Now we're talking about organizational data silos, which for me is really interesting because now we've morphed it into, you know, you know, protecting our bit of data or, you know, you can't, you can't have that because it's, it's, you know, it's mine, yeah. you yeah. know, and I think that's another thing that we've just sort of taken it one level down. And, and, 
so, so innovation can never happen in those types of organizations um, because there's a lot of stifle thinking. But, uh, you know, the, the organizational development and change is a huge topic. And, you well, know, let, let, let's, yeah, sorry. Go one, ahead. one last point is, this mm. is why mm. I, I think medium-sized organizations have a big advantage over large organizations. Yeah. Because they can make that kind of cultural transformation. Mm -hmm. You can have mm -hmm. a CEO who has a kind of vision, aspiration, and can turn the org chart upside down mm -hmm. and put the people in the front lines in yes. charge. Yes. They will run right past the bigger players. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right past because again, because they're going to leverage their agility and the economies of learning to 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 reinvent their business processes to disintermediate customer relationships and to totally disrupt traditional business uh, models. Yeah. And I, I think you're right there. And I think, you know, the, 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 the way to do that is to, to empower the front lines and so on. And I, and, and it's, it's the responsibility and the, you know, the accountability that you give them. And so that they can make a tough decision. And as you said, they can learn from it. And that's the continuous learning that they all embed. So back to, back to the, 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 you know, innovation or strategy or, or data or analytics officers, where, where, where do we need to get to in that, in that pool of endless titles? We need somebody who owns mm -hmm. monetizing data. Okay. Got to own, somebody's got to own that. They've got to be able to have the responsibility and the authority. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of these roles don't have teeth. This is mm -hmm. really honest, right? The, the, the chief analytics officer has going to have very little success telling the head of one of the business units that they need to do something a certain way. Like, nah, I make yeah. the money, you don't, right? And so they need to have both the, the responsibility and the authority to, um, to mandate out data silos, to mandate out orphaned analytics. You're going to only build analytics in this way. We're going to house them all here. We're going to have a centralized repository of analytics. We're going to put in place a structure for how you build these things, right? We're going to, so you, you got to have somebody who's got teeth, owns the monitor can mandate it right can make mm -hmm. it happen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so is that person within already within the business is that person uh maybe you know somebody who's got a design thinking background and can bring some very very different way of thinking or is it you know how how high or low in the organization or is it all about the generation of excitement and no no, it's not about excitement, right? Because that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't pay the rent. That doesn't right? pay. The, so, so what? So where does this person absolutely? You know, you you class them as the, the 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 chief monetization officer. I mean, let's get away from the chief. You know, and, yeah. and, and you know, let's just think of data monetization and say, right, okay, we're going to monetize our data. So I, I I I believe this role needs to be able to straddle across all different parts of the organization. If your CEO truly believes that data is the new oil in the sense that- <laughs> Don't say that. No, let me, let me explain <laughs> that sense. So I, I think this phrase is very provocative because mm -hmm. in the same way that oil fueled the economic growth in the 20th century, data will be the catalyst for the economic growth in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's got a lot of power. So yeah. if, if you as a CEO really believe that, that's step one. If you don't believe that, then all bets are off. But if you believe that data is the source of economic growth in the 21st century, mm -hmm. then the single most important question that our organization needs to be able to answer is how effective are you at leveraging data and analytics to power your business models? Okay. How Agreed. important is that to you? Agreed. And do you have a single person who owns that mm -hmm. question? Mm -hmm which mm -hmm. you should, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so if the CEO believes that data is the new oil, the source of economic growth in the 21st century, if the CEO believes that we need to become more effective at leveraging data and analytics, we talked about it from going from descriptive analytics, predictive, prescriptive to you know autonomous analytics, right? If yeah. you believe that, then you need to have a single person who owns that and it probably needs to report to the CEO. And here's the reason why. Yeah, they've got to be able to reach across all the parts of the organization. They've yes. got to be the common thread, because there's there's maybe the CEO COO is a common thread today, but you need to have somebody who's a common thread, and allowing organizations to share the data 
and more importantly, share the customer product and operational insights that come from that data yes. to help fuel their use cases. Yeah, yeah, I, I agreed. So, you know, we are talking about, um, and I'm in, I'm in wild agreement with you, but right now, as you said earlier, we've got the, you know, the chief data officer, analytics officer, we've got a governance, you know, leader in place, yeah. we've got so-and-so and, you know, God knows as long as my arm right now, you know, layer upon layer of, of these people, right? Which don't have budgets, don't have the, the, the outcomes that they want from, you know, as you quite rightly said, the business is, is saying, well, you know, I'm the one that makes the money, so just walk away. Right. Uh, Essentially, is it somebody, do we need to go back to the old, you know, way of, uh, not old way, but do we have to have something like a chief strategy and innovation officer? Is that what we're gunning for? Or, you know, because there's, there's just, it's, it's getting pretty weighty and crowded in that, in that C-suite. Um, here's, here's the, you know, the title is not nearly as yeah. important as, as the um, responsibility authority, and you said a key word, budget. Yes. Right? If they have the responsibility and authority, but no budget, well, they don't have any authority. No, right? no, not at all. If you don't have any money, and you didn't get any, this is all about, this rule has to have teeth. And not only do they need to have budget, but you have to be able to measure their outcomes or success based on the outcomes they're driving to the business. Sure. That sure. That's a must, right? So- yep. So I think whatever the title might be, mm -hmm. this person has to own budget ha and that budget has to be focused on helping the other parts of the organization drive value. value. So now we've yeah. gone full loop. Yeah. We taught, we started the conversation talking about value, <laughs> right? Yeah. We've come around all the way full loop on value because that is the key point. It you is. You need somebody in the organization who owns driving value from the data and analytics. And we know that the value is only created by the business units who are trying to deliver product and services to their customers and constituents. Yep, I, I, I agree. So um, let's agree on that in terms of the value piece and in terms of the individual or individuals that take that on. In, and I, just, I, I think let's just, just move to another uh, topic. In your, in your book, the latest one, um, you talk about the big data maturity curve. Yes. And you talk about this thing called the analytics chasm. <laughs> Why is that a challenge for many organizations? Uh, the, the, the analytics chasm, um, the reason why I believe the analytics chasm exists and the analytic chasm in, in the big data business model maturity index, it's what prevents companies from going from um, descriptive reports and dashboards that measure what happened to predictive reports that tell you what's likely to happen and mm -hmm. descriptive actions. So it's, it's the, it's the preventer. Right. And here's the okay. problem with the analytics chasm. It's owned by the CIO. So it's treated <laughs> as if it's a technology problem. Right. And we see companies just dumping technology into the chasm, trying to solve the problem. And I'll tell you right now, the cross the chasm is not a technology problem. It's an economics problem. Mm -hmm. And in particular, it's a nano economics problem. If you think about economics, we've had macroeconomics, microeconomics, mm -hmm. and what we're seeing today is the birth of a concept economics, which is about the identification and exploitation or monetization of individual human or device propensities. Okay. Right? <laughs> I can cross an analytics chasm if I go from looking at data from an averages perspective, which is what happens in descriptions, to becoming very granular focused on individuals and their propensities. So that if I want to predict who's likely to leave the organization, mm -hmm. I can't do it based on averages. I need to have a score yes. and everybody in the company on their propensity to leave. Think about like a FICO score. Yeah. Everybody in the world's got a FICO score, right? We can create a score on somebody's likelihood to leave we can create a score on someone's likelihood to conduct fraud. We can create a score on the likelihood to promote or likely to recommend. When you think about this, it's about getting down to that granular level of nanoeconomics where I built these propensities and understand these scores so I can take laser-like precision decisions in order to cross that chasm so that I can predict. I can't predict based on averages. Well, I can predict, I just don't know how to act. And by the mm -hmm. way, I would argue, well, my favorite 
my favorite paragraph in this book is the opening paragraph in the preface, right? Because it talks about why I wrote this book. Yep. And yep. I wrote this book because I was so frustrated by what was going on in the world with these overly generalized policy and operational decisions. Mm -hmm. We were making mm -hmm. decisions based on averages and the world was just going down a toilet. We were circling the drain going on a toilet because we kept making decisions based on averages. No, yeah. no we need to get precision. And mm -hmm. again, crossing the chasm requires us not to look at the volume of data, but to look at the granularity and to build these propensity scores and models that we can use to drive decisions on a very precision granular basis. So, so you're almost talking about, you know, another uh, a term that people might use, which could well be hyper-personalization, which, yes. you know, it, it's the way that you look at it in the most granular aspects so that I can move Samir along that customer journey and I can know the triggers and I know what decisions to make based on a value exchange between my company and him or he, him and my company. And I and think it, that's, it, that's what you're but, kind but of- But it's more, than, it's more yeah. than just humans though, right? Yeah. You're, yes. You're exactly right. Yeah. Hyper-personalization from a human yeah. perspective means yeah. you understand my tendencies, propensities, inclinations. Yeah. Exactly. And you're using that to, to really better serve me. Mm -hmm. But I can apply that to devices too. Things. Right. Okay. Right? I can figure out what parts are likely to break, when they're likely to replace. Right. Yes. The best yes. person to fix it. I get down to those very precision. So yeah, that I, yeah, yeah. So and the interesting thing here is what the ramifications of this nano economics is. We can use this to transform our economic value curve mm -hmm. to overcome the law of diminishing returns mm -hmm. and to transform it so that we can actually we can do more with less because we're finally focusing what we're going to do and yeah. we're not wasting our time chasing things that don't need to be fixed. Yep. Yep. And 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 I think that's why I like your. Um, that's why I like the way you've put it in your book. I, I, I'm not an economist. So I, 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 I look at it and I say, okay, now I've got to get into my head into economics, but actually you, you've, you've sort of said it's the, it's the, the economic return of valuing that data. And I'm not talking about a valuation on data. I'm talking about how that, that value of data can drive a new business model or a new process or whatever it might be. So for me, I'm a simple person. I just like to look at things very, you know, break them down and really understand. That's the only way I can do it. So I think, you know, when, when I look, or look at the book and I, I know you've, I haven't come to the chapter of economics yet, which I'm dreading um, because that wasn't always <laughs> my best. Uh, um, uh, that wasn't always my best subject. Um, but so this term nano, economics is that something that you had to come you know is is it a generalized term out there and is no, it so, something that you so you know so it's not in the book right actually it's not in the book it's something that's come up in the last two months it's a book ah, really okay so it's new ah, right. i got you okay so so okay. And, and my my goal has been that i don't want the book to be a dead document. I want it to be a living document. Absolutely. As I uncover new things, there's two topics in particular that I'm working on that I want people to be able to, you know, print and clip into their yeah, books. Yeah, and and yeah. One's around nanoeconomics and one's around AI ethics. But we'll talk about that. But the nanoeconomics, sure. the, the term has been used before, but it was it was about it was about um, singular transactions. Okay. And what I've done is I've modified to say it's not the transaction I'm interested in, it's the propensities that I can develop mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. individual human or device. Mm -hmm. It's about that, you know, propensities are basically predictions what they're yeah. likely to do. Yeah. yeah. And it isn't, it isn't having the transaction that's any value. It's the ability to turn that transaction into a prediction as far as what's likely to happen. Next. Now yeah, yeah. I've I've gone yeah. down this path of moving towards this term that you and I both hate, which is digital transformation, right? <laughs> but it is it is moving organizations further down the path for how do I leverage data and analytics to really optimize my my business models and my operations? So yeah. so I have taken the term nanoeconomics and I'll claim that I've made it I've made it more relevant. Mm -hmm. A term that was mm -hmm. probably came out you know many years ago, but never really talked about. And again, there's, you're going to have to, I'll, I'll make sure I, you find the blogs I've written about it because I'm going to spend more time on it. But it gets back to this goal of, I don't want this thing to have written this thing and then I'm done. Like, put me to rest. <laughs> I want no. this, this yeah. book to be, to be a, a 
centerpiece around which we can share ideas around things like nanoeconomics, like mm -hmm. AI ethics and whatever else comes out in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, just one thing about that, though. The book is not really about, um, and I think this is what I got from it. This book is not really like uh, Doug Laney's Infonomics. It's not about putting data on a balance sheet. It's not about the accounting procedures of that, right? You're, yes. you're saying that's that's that can be something, but what I'm trying to do is is to sweat this asset to get the best out of it that I can for an organization to drive that revenue or that those cost efficiencies or whatever it might be. So data monetization from your aspect is slightly different from Doug's. Yes, yes. And you're, you're spot on. I want to use the term sweat out. The okay. <laughs> That's a great term, right? Yeah. I want to put, if we think about what difference between an accounting monetization perspective and an economics, mm -hmm. accounting is a uh, value in exchange monetization yeah. method, which is the value of an asset is based on what someone's willing to pay you for. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in, in order to get data onto how the gap defines assets today, we need to find somebody who's willing to say, well, that data, I'm willing to pay you this much for the data. And then you can put it on your balance sheet. And that's even, you know, that's a really hard problem. Sure. Doug's doing a great job of wrestling with that. I cheated. I just said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go down that. That's too hard. That's Doug. You, you're doing a great job. You've on done that. That bit. Yeah. You do that, yeah. Doug. What I'm going to focus on is the economics mm -hmm. and economics is a valuation in use. That's yes. The value of an asset is how you use it, which is why, you know, uh, a car, let's say it's a $30,000 car. Why that $30,000 car is worth more to an Uber driver than it is to me. Right, because they're using that car to generate more. Yeah, value. they're sweating the car. The, that they're asset. sweating the yeah, car, yeah. right? They're yeah, using yeah. it. And yeah. so, if you if you if you push aside the accounting requirements and worry about don't you know don't worry about putting it on the books. Who gives a shit? Who gives a hoot? Right, right. It doesn't matter. The most important thing is how am I using that data? They just sweating it mm -hmm. to get more value, to mm -hmm. to improve customer retention, to reduce yeah. operational downtime, to reduce inventory. Right. That's and so I mean I cheated. I got lazy. But, the, but if I take an economics approach, this whole thing becomes much easier to grok sure. and move forward on. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like that. And, you know, I think we've got to get to that term that, that is on the front of the book, digital transformation. It's talked about every day. It's in every, you know, article that comes up. You know, it's, it's one of those things that people, you know, day in, day out are, are, are waffling on about. And, and I, I, I don't like to to use the term waffle, but that there is, well, what's the, what are the key success factors to this, to this thing called digital transformation? Because I see most companies doing digital and they're not really changing their business model. They're not activating anything. All they're doing is just putting a bit of tech on top of an old process and they expect it to get better um, and drive more, more outcomes. But what, it, what, what do we need to do as organizations to become more effective and to absolutely drive this thing called digital transformation? So this is a good question. And um, I take a shot at a definition in the book and my definition is really built around creating a continuously learning and adapting culture. That I believe that the companies that are gonna survive any transformation, now we're talking digital, you know, some point in time it's gonna be, um, you know, some other, you know, yeah, Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah, whatever. There's going to be something be, yeah. else out there, right? It's going to it's yep. going to quantum computing, right? It'll cause a new organization that are going to survive in a world of continuous transformation. By the mm -hmm. way, transformation isn't just technology. No, you have you have social, you have environmental. Yeah, you have you know um, People, all, well, all kinds yeah. of different kinds of transformation mm -hmm. taking place. Mm -hmm. The organizations that are going to win are those that are are going to be able to continuously learn and adapt faster than their competition. That's the bottom line, right? I got to be able to learn and adapt faster than my competition. That has two aspects. So digital transformation has two aspects. Yep. There's the digital AI ML data side of it, building these analytic assets using AI and you know machine learning and reinforcement learning that are continuously learning. There's that aspect. But there's also the human aspect. Mm -hmm. That you know, how do we empower humans so they're continuously yeah. learning? And how yeah. do I optimize that machine human interface so that they're learning together more rapidly than my competition. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest thing that most organizations struggle with. Um, and we, we've talked about that, 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 I think, endless in terms of, you know, um, 
how those two things come together for, through certainly through your your frameworks and others. So listen, I think you know we're we're, we're getting to the point where we've run over. Um, <laughs> That's okay. It was great. This was a good conversation. <laughs> and I, you know, I, as I said to you, I'd put so almost 18 different themes on um, on my on my on my in my notepad. So listen, I think you know the final words. Where where are, where, where can um, where can people learn more about you? Where can obviously there's the books. Um, you know, how can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? The, the best place is um, I post all my blogs on, on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And so to get the latest stuff on the nano economics and on, on ethics, ethical AI, um, I post everything on LinkedIn. Also, um, I post everything I write on Twitter as well. I, okay. I stay in my swim lane on Twitter. I don't go outside the, the general Twitter universe. I stay within the data science, big data stuff. Okay. Um, okay. I also publish on Data Science Central as well. Yeah, there's I, you can reach me on LinkedIn very safely. Ask me questions. Um, I really love questions because that tells me what I don't, what I didn't explain well. I mean, I I really I love to write because writing forces me to be very succinct when I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. and many times I fail at that, and sometimes it'll take me two or three times to get it right. So again visit me on LinkedIn. And, and by the way, I do lots of uh, uh, conference keynotes and things. Please, you know, join me for one of those, get involved in the Q and A session afterwards, ask me questions. Um, everything's fair game. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bill. I have had a wonderful time, an animated time, I think of uh, in this, but you know, I, hopefully you can feature on the show again. And I just look forward to, to reading more about the book um, and, you know, hearing more about AI ethics and, and building on some of the nanoeconomic stuff, which, again, you know, I'm not going to dread because it's economics, but I'll, I'll try I'll try and it's, veer away from that. It's, it's, the it's, data it's, it's, it's the it's the best stuff of economics. It isn't all the crazy ass stuff. There's no there's no econometrics in here. Trust me. Oh, oh thank God for that. <laughs> OK, well, look, you know, I, I, I love all of, uh, of what we've discussed. And I really want to thank you hugely, you know, uh, for being on the show today. Thanks, Mir. It was a fun, good, good conversation. You came prepared, which is always a good sign. <laughs> Thank you very much.